Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is the show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country that is as divided as America has become these days. I'm Van Jones. Now, there's no nice way to say this. The economy sucks right now. It just sucks. Cost of everything's going up. Uh, and people are worrying that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And at the same time, a lot of people are doing very well. We don't talk about that. But there are people who are making billions of dollars, millions of dollars. They live in big blue coastal cities. You know, the stock market's been crazy this year. But the rich people in America are still really, really, really rich. And everybody else is falling behind. In fact, that makes every other division harder to bridge, the economic division. That feeds into the coastal versus heartland division. So this class division is the big division. And yet not that many leaders are really working to, to bridge that divide. But there is one very unlikely leader who's doing it. My guest today knows all about the coastal elites because uh, he represents most of them. Look, I uh, do represent a district that has probably more billionaires that maybe have ever been produced in any district. And yet I can say that they ought to be taxed fairly and that we ought to be supporting a billionaire tax. And we ought to be supporting a billionaire tax to pay for health care and pay for education so every kid can have a fair shot. He represents California's 17th Congressional District, it's a district that is situated within what we now call Silicon Valley. Congressman Ro Khanna. His district, in fact, has one of the highest concentration of billionaires in the country. Billionaires. And yet, Congressman Khanna has decided to partner with a Republican congressman named Hal Rogers in eastern Kentucky. Now, you would think these are very different guys, they're very different people, and their districts are very different. But eastern Kentucky has a fledgling tech sector. They call it Silicon Holler. That's what Congressman Rogers called it, Silicon Holler. And he's got a strong workforce there, you know, mostly coal mining, that kind of stuff. But there are some leaders in that region who are looking for ways to bridge this economic divide by creating economic opportunities in the technology sector right there in Kentucky. And Congressman Khanna is helping out. He's working on creating ways to connect the world of technology with rural communities, and he's doing that through training programs, investment in technology institutes, and job creation. Now, in success, these initiatives would help to spread out some of these 21st century technology jobs in a much more geographically diverse way, get more people involved, get more opportunity to more places. And he's doing that because he recognizes that a lot of people have been left out. A lot of people have been excluded. And when you leave people out of a very promising sector, that hurts everybody. And this congressman from Blue Blue, California, is reaching out with these ideas. He's got good ideas about how to fix it. But I want you to listen to how Ro Khanna talks about the opportunities for spreading these well-paying tech jobs around the country. He's not up here suggesting 
you know, the, you know all these coal miners are going to become computer coders. He's focused on high-tech manufacturing and other workable solutions for that part of the country. I think you're going to be inspired hearing from someone like him. Stay tuned for my conversation with Congressman Ro Khanna right after this break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Well, first, I just want to say how, how glad I am to get a chance to have this conversation with you. You know, this podcast is really about people who build bridges and how tough it is and, and how to do it. And I think you've been trying to build bridges in the most difficult circumstances, you know, from, from red states to blue states. I mean, you're doing stuff in California. You're doing stuff in West Virginia. You're trying to unite a party that has billionaires in it. And there's a wing of the party that hates the billionaires. I mean, you're doing it all. And I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about why and how. And the best way to get started is to hear a little bit more about you. You have a very interesting background. Your family has ties to the Indian independence movement, the whole deal. Give me the superhero origin story of Ro Khanna. <laughs> uh, there's no super origin story, but I can give you my, my story. And I appreciate, man, so much uh, for being on because I, I think you're one of the more most thoughtful voices in our country. You have been a, a bridge builder for your entire career. So I was born in Philadelphia in uh, 1976. Uh, my parents are immigrants from India. They came here after 1965 because my dad was a chemical engineer. And after the 65 Immigration Act is really when the country opened up to Indians and Chinese coming here. I mean, before the civil rights movement, we basically didn't allow many Indians or Chinese to come to America. And so they were a beneficiary of that. And so my father was uh, an engineer at Roman Haas for 30 years. My mom was a school teacher. I grew up in middle-class family, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And my grandfather, who was a big influence on my politics, worked for a person named Lala Lajpat Rai, who in India was a huge freedom fighter. And my grandfather went to jail for four years at the time during Gandhi's Quit India movement in 1942. Even though he passed away when I was young, he's such a legend in our family that that's really the call to, to public service. You know, it's an amazing journey. And you think about how stupid racism is <laughs> in terms of locking out talented people, hardworking people, great people. The idea that you're going to say, based on the color of your skin or what country you're from, 
lock the door to genius and talent and then try to win a global competition. Makes no sense. Now, you know, your dad did great stuff. You're going to be a legend to your kids and grandkids because of what you're trying to do. Let's talk a little bit about this Silicon Holler idea. Yeah, it'd be easy for me to start talking about stuff in Northern California where you represent. You're one of the few people who actually doing work for people that you don't represent. Talk about Silicon Holler. What is Silicon Holler and why do you care? Why are you involved in it? So Silicon Holler is a term not that I came up with. It's a term that Hal Rogers, a Republican congressman in Paintsville, Kentucky, came up with. And I was three months into Congress and Hal Rogers comes up to me on the House floor. He says, well, I want I want you to come down to Paintsville, Kentucky and see what we've got going on there. You'll be very impressed. Uh, We understand that these big pipes, the Internet, that we need to be making stuff to sell to others so that we get money coming into Paintsville instead of just people having taking money out of Paintsville. And so I went down there and here was the remarkable part, man, that I think sometimes people in our party or those of us who've lived a lot of times on the coast miss. Folks in Paintsville, Kentucky, know exactly what's going on about the economy. They get that tech is producing a lot of wealth. They get that jobs are changing. They want to be part of the new economy, and they want to have those opportunities for their kids. And I think a lot of times we kind of feel, oh, do they really understand? Are they sophisticated enough? You could have had that roundtable I had in Paintsville, Kentucky, in Silicon Valley. You called it the future of work or at MIT or any of those Aspen conferences. You could have done the same conference at Paintsville, had the folks there. They get it. The challenge is that they haven't had the opportunity. And the other thing I think that's the biggest misconception is these tech jobs. There's this sense, oh, how are you going to make a coal miner or a tech worker? Of course you're not. You're not going to have them work at Google or doing software. But these aren't the new tech jobs. They're manufacturing jobs. They're retail jobs. There's this caricature, I think, a very unhelpful caricature that you've got to go become a coder to have a tech job. First of all, no one wants to do that. And there are plenty of other great jobs, including manufacturing and production jobs. But the reality is that a lot of these new tech jobs are jobs in manufacturing, in retail, in healthcare, in education. And the new mantra in Silicon Valley is actually no-code, low-code jobs, meaning you don't need to know how to code for most of these jobs. And I was so struck by Alex Hughes because he makes... His whole family made things in Paintsville, Kentucky. And he says, we know how to make things. And he's now making refrigerators, but he's got a tech job because he took a six-month credentialing course on how to make sure those refrigerators were smart appliances. You know, computers on wheels or automobiles. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that because I do think that, you know, the idea of, of being a coder or being an engineer is where most people go. Describe some of these jobs. You mentioned, you know, being a, a high-tech a refrigerator repair person. Talk about some of the jobs that are needed now that would be low code and no code, but still tech jobs. There's so many that are needed in manufacturing, right? I mean, all of these jobs in making the new appliances, new making new automobiles. Look at the UAW manual in understanding what it takes to make today's automobile. They have extraordinary skill in basic technology and understanding of technology. Look at what Intel is doing in Ohio. $20 billion dollars into Ohio. What I don't understand for the life of me is why the Democratic Party doesn't talk about this, because this is the whole chip sack that's making it possible. DeWine, who's a Republican governor, every commercial is about how he's bringing the Intel investment into Ohio, and he deserves credit, but so does, so does our president. But that's going to be 7,000 manufacturing jobs to make semiconductors. Those aren't all college jobs, by the way. Those are a lot of blue-collar jobs. 
And the great thing about a message of how do we bring some of this production back, how do we bring technology back, is universal. Because you look at the deindustrialization that's taken place in this country, and this is part of what motivates my work. You know, all this wealth piling up in my district, $11 trillion. You poll in my district young people, they are incredibly optimistic about America and the American dream. I mean, it's sometimes it's 70%, 80%. The numbers are off the chart. Now, you've had at the same time deindustrialization in places like Galesburg, Illinois, where factories have just left, towns have been decimated. But you've also had that, by the way, in large parts of the black communities in America, Dayton, Ohio, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bill Spriggs, the economist at the AFL-CIO, has a brilliant report that deindustrialization and job loss actually hurt black communities more than even white working class communities. So in my view, there's this universal message of what are we going to do for 50% of America, at least more than 50%, that has been taken where they don't have the means of production, the means of making a living. How are we going to bring economic opportunity to them in the 21st century? Let's talk because you're weird. <laughs> this is where I get di- this is where I get dissected. It's like the enough with the uh, initial uh, flattery. No, no, it's, no it, it, it's I, I want to get into this because why do you give a damn? That's what I'm trying to figure out about you. You really care about this stuff. You, you I'm going to give you some very bad news. None of these people in Kentucky can vote for you, brother. You got and if you, if you ran for president, they, it's the red state is not going to help you. So there's something going on here with you. Something happened in your life, some reason that you are going and trying to figure out a way out of no way for people who you don't even represent. People who can't write you a check to your super PAC. People who cannot vote for you. Why do you care so much? Why are you doing this? I think that's a um, deep question. I, I Probably it's two reasons if I was going to be honest about it. You know, your whole life when, you're, when you grow up as... Indian American of, of, of Hindu faith, and I've had this country believe in me in a, a lot of ways. But there's a part of you that, you know, wants to make sure that the country is a place that embraces people of all backgrounds and all stories. And you know what? I just deep down think that if we want to do that, if we want to get to that place, we can't have written off large parts of the community where they think Silicon Valley, Indian Americans, where where are all those jobs going? Where's our future? I I don't think that's what's going to get us to an America that embraces the stories and identities of everyone. And so I think part of the deep reason for doing this work is in some ironic sense tied to an identity of wanting to say, yeah, I care about this, building this America. And Here's what I can do to recognize that people have been totally excluded from an economy. I think a second part of it, though, with the African-American community, you know, my parents wouldn't have been in in this country if it weren't for the civil rights movement. And so, you know, when Indian Americans first came to the United States, why so many of them teach at HBCUs? Because Harvard and MIT didn't hire them at the time. So I think, okay, now you got a number of Indian Americans who are in Silicon Valley, running Google, running Microsoft. You know, by the way, they get it. And there's a sense that now they have the opportunity to create opportunities for people who had helped the Indian American community. And so I think those are psychological motives of what makes someone do something. It's really good to hear. It's just interesting, you know, there's just not that many people like you on the scene. 
especially, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley, who are, are just so aggressive trying to figure out some way to include more people. It's not easy. I think people, they look at somebody like you, they think themselves, man, you're, you're trying to help folks. But at the same time, these people are Trump voters. These people are Republicans. Some of these people may be racist. Some of these people may be homophobic. Some of these people may have all these detriments. How can you go and help them and validate them and ignore all of that stuff? How do you balance it psychologically, emotionally, just practically? Other people may want to do what you're doing, but they may feel held back by some things that you seem to have been able to somehow transcend. How do you do that? First of all, I have the relative advantage of being unknown, even after this podcast, probably still (laughs) relatively unknown. And I say that because people don't have a lot of preconceptions about me when I show up. I think it's harder to do if you've been in national politics a long time and been defined. But when I show up in these communities, you know, actually people are pretty open and they're pretty impressed just showing up. And then I think what you find that a lot of folks in these communities are deeply good people. You know, I was just in Galesburg, Illinois, and they were talking about this factory Maytag that had left 20 years ago. And they were talking about how it was a family and how they knew each other's families and they would celebrate Christmas together. And it wasn't just the destruction of jobs. It was a destruction of the community. And you got the sense there was almost this innocence to a, a lot of folks there. They said, bro, we never want to be millionaires. We just, we just, we were fine with our jobs. And, you know, we didn't have that much of a problem with the company either. You know, we knew some company folks, but you know what happened? They said the jobs left. President Obama famously spoke about Galesburg in his keynote speech in 2004 eloquently. But he said, let me be blunt. It's 20 years later. The community is not any better off. There are no jobs here. We still tell our kids to leave. And you hear that and you say, bluntly, race or xenophobia or all of the negatives isn't the first thing that comes to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is, wow, if I were them, I'd be angry too. If I were them, I wouldn't believe any politician either. If I were them and I heard Roe on TV talking about Build Back Better, I'd say, yeah, come on, is that really going to help Galesburg? So I, I think we have to really get ourselves in the shoes of a lot of these folks and understand why are they angry? I spent a lot of my time working in, in prisons, you know, trying to bring that uh, kind of injustice to light. And I was always surprised because there were people who on the left progressives would praise me for doing that. My goodness, you're going in, you're, you're, you're seeing past people's flaws, you're seeing their humanity, you want them to have a second chance, you won't let them be defined by their circumstance. And yet those same people, <laughs> when I go to West Virginia <laughs> and I'm sitting down with Trump voters, they say, oh, my God, how can you talk to those people? Like, you know, these people are terrible people. I'm like, I don't mean to be rude, but <laughs> you might find, you know, that the people I'm talking to in prisons have done stuff that is way more shocking <laughs> and possibly way more destructive than who, you know, somebody voted for. But I refuse to let those people be defined by their worst day, their worst decision. Everybody, to your point, has a story. And everybody, to your point, has, you know, their own anxieties and needs and concerns. And they mainly want to know about anybody coming into the community, whether it's a red state, whether it's a reservation, whether it's Appalachia, whether it's the hood, whether it's the border, wherever it is. It's not, you know, are you just like me? It's do you like me? Do you care about me? Can you see me as a human being beyond whatever label 
you know, I may embrace for myself or someone may, may put on me. And I think for me, growing up in a small town in rural West Tennessee, you just learn how to deal with people as people. And I see that quality in you. I see you doing that. And I see you doing that, you know, from the point of view of somebody who's even willing to go on Fox News and have some of these tough conversations. A lot of progressives would be very concerned, almost afraid to go on a Fox News. Why do you do that? I think you have to meet people where they are. And there are a lot of people who watch Fox News. That's the, the, the reality. The other thing is, you know, I don't go on Fox. Some people go on Fox and they say, OK, I want to get that viral clip to have that great soundbite taking on the host. Now, you've hosted on different networks. It's usually very hard to beat the it's host on a, on a network. <laughs> but, but, but occasionally you'll get the clip. But I, I don't try to do that. I, I try to go on there so that at the end of the day, people will say, you know what? I may not agree with Kana on Medicare for all. I probably don't agree with him that we ought to be canceling student debt for working in middle class. But you know what? He loves the country and he's not judging me. And he's just putting forth his viewpoints and he's a decent guy. And that's my whole goal on going on there. And I'll never compromise what I believe, but I'll just say it in a way that people say, okay, I can understand we're Americans who disagree. I think there's a value in that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The weird thing about civility is it's key to civilization. <laughs> once, you t- <laughs> once you take out civility, you don't have civilization. I don't think anybody wins. Certainly none of the constituencies that we care about, you know, the, the so-called you know, least of these, you know, the people that Jesus talked about, you know, the addicted, the convicted, the afflicted, the folks at the bottom, they wouldn't benefit from a further breakdown in social order. <laughs> they wouldn't benefit from uh, you know, more enemies, more angry, better armed, more upset. I don't understand this drive I see among some progressives to ratchet up <laughs> the level of, of tension and discourse and accusation and stuff like that. Look, my constituency are people who have very little. Uh, when you have very little, if you're locked up in prison, if you're homeless or, or hanging on you know, to your two jobs trying to stay out of homelessness, you don't need more enemies. You need more friends. 
And so, you know, there's a reason, I think, of consistent moral and also political reason to even where we disagree to, to do so uh, as agreeably as possible. So at least there can be some understanding and respect even where there's disagreement. You know, uh, as you look at our party, I'm a very proud Democrat. We've got some tensions inside our party. And you are doing a very interesting thing because, you know, you represent a bunch of billionaires. <laughs> you may represent as many billionaires as anybody's ever represented. And yet you were, you know, helping Bernie Sanders move his agenda forward. He seems to sometimes be a little bit, I don't know, maybe frustrated with the billionaires. How do you square that circle? <laughs> I'm still trying. I'm still trying again. <laughs> but the reality is this. Look, I... Uh do represent a district that has probably more billionaires than maybe have ever been produced in any district. And yet I can say that they ought to be taxed fairly and that we ought to be supporting a billionaire tax and we ought to be supporting a billionaire tax to pay for healthcare and pay for education so every kid can have a fair shot. And you know what? The constituency keeps sending me back. And so I said, how hard can this be for other districts to be for the billionaire tax if the guy representing the district with the billionaires is for the billionaire tax? But here is, I think, what is so frustrating in my view in this country. We have produced more wealth today than ever before. It's mind-boggling. And so you have this phenomenal wealth generation going on, and yet you still have so much of the country totally left out. Half the country, if not more, thinking the American dream isn't going to be available for their kids workers making 15 bucks at Amazon warehouses instead of 30 bucks in manufacturing. And I don't have all the answers, but I know something is profoundly off that we can produce this kind of wealth and we still don't have people being able to participate it with a fair shot. And so a lot of my work is to say what Bernie is saying, Medicare for all or free college, that's not going to kill the billions or the engine of growth. If anything, it will give more people an opportunity to it. But you know what will kill the engine of this kind of prosperity is if we continue down the line of the stark inequalities we have and continue to build resentment and polarization in this country. Well, I think that's that's true. At the same time, I do wonder, I mean, some of your constituency is they're voting with their feet uh, in that some people are leaving California. You know, they're going to the Floridas, they're going to the Nevadas, they're going to Texas and they just say, hey, listen, I feel beat up just in terms of the overall vibe coming off of the blue states and the blue cities and the blue campuses, that I suck. If, if I'm rich, it's only because I'm privileged. I didn't work hard for it. There are also people who were born middle class and, and, and you know, maybe got lucky, but also worked hard and made some, some smart bets, wound up with billions of dollars and feel like they're targeted now. How do you manage that side of the equation and also literally people voting with their feet out of California? I do think some of the people for political reasons have exaggerated this exodus out of California. Usually the few who leave are uh, people who build their company in California. They use the California public education and our universities, and then they don't want to pay the capital gains tax and they leave right before they, they exit. But there are common sense issues that we have to be honest about. We've got to speak honestly about some of the crime in my district. And so the pendulum, I think, has swung from the needed reform, where things were too draconian, where we were destroying kids' lives because they had a marijuana conviction, and those were largely black and brown communities, to a sense now in our district that, you know, that there's not a respect for police officers in some cases, that there's not a sense of basic safety, and, and, and that has to change. And I've always been for, you know, smart funding of police, in some cases, increasing funding in places like San Jose or Fremont, 
but understanding also that the need for tackling police violence and, and, and reform. But that's a that's definitely an issue. Housing is an issue. We've got a lot of nimbyism in the Bay Area. You know, we're all for uh, all for things uh, when they don't affect us, but don't don't build the affordable housing near where we live. So we've got to build more housing in, in the Bay Area. And we've got to be more attentive to the inequalities in our own backyard. I know you were acutely aware of that when you were in the Bay Area, but you know, it's East San Jose, 60% rent burden to a lot of folks. Their life is worse off because of the tech boom. So we certainly have our own challenges. I don't know, man. You just sound so reasonable. I mean, <laughs> you just sound like somebody who's thought about stuff, who cares about stuff. I don't think Democrats right now look reasonable to a lot of people. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just concerned. You know, the Republicans who are you know, capitalizing off of some of these uh, Democratic Party missteps and misstatements there, there is something there that I feel has gotten off the rails. I do think, you know, living in California, the houselessness, homelessness, lack of shelter for people is just shocking. And you, you, then you look and you realize that millions and millions of dollars are being spent and it's not getting any better. That's bad. You know, there, there may be an overstatement of some of the increase in crime, but there's enough of an increase and enough of a felt sense of an increase that I think progressives need to do a better job of owning the outrage of that. My view is we want to maximize human freedom and dignity consistent with community safety. Like that's the limiting factor is you got to have safe communities. But what we learned is when you go from community safety to law and order imposed only on some people with draconian consequences, those communities don't get safer. They do get poorer. <laughs> so that doesn't work. Look, I want our kids held to high standards. My dad didn't get out of poverty being held to a low standard. He got out of poverty being held to a high standard. I want to hold the kids to high standards. I want to hold the adults to higher standards. You know, I want to make sure police departments are, are being run effectively and lawfully. I want to make sure that, you know, schools work. But I don't believe that dropping standards for kids is good. How did we get to a point where that might sound controversial to some people at the Democratic Party? <laughs> You're right, it has. I was on saying... Uh that it's fine to have a math standards where kids can take calculus in high school. And they said, well, this may be discriminatory against black and brown kids because black and brown kids can't take calculus as much as other kids. And I said that the solution to that is to have more educational resources to make sure that they can, not to say that we don't teach calculus in high school. And it turns out this is a, now a controversial statement in, in certain progressive circles. Look, I, I think the sympathetic view of it is that there have been and are deep injustices in our country. And, and we all know that injustices, obviously, starting on race with 250 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, injustices on gender, injustices on immigration. And I think some of the younger folks feel those injustices acutely. And then the question becomes the perennial question in American politics. What do you do with that? And where do you go with that? And I guess I come from the model of people like Frederick Douglass. You know, Frederick Douglass could be enslaved and still in 1869 give a speech saying America is on the ascent. And I believe we're going to be the greatest nation as a composite nation. And if people like Dr. King could still have such hope in America and the possibility of America or John Lewis, then they take deep, deep injustices 
and find universal language to talk about what America can aspire to. There are others in our history who take a different approach, who say, no, it's so deeply uh, problematic that I want to reject part of the country itself. I don't believe in that American story. I guess I do believe in the American story. I still believe there are millions of people who want to come to America and not go to China. And we ought to talk about an aspirational coalition building vision of America. And I, I guess some younger folks don't agree with that. And, and our, my job is to, to make the case to them that they should. But, you know, I, I've talked about this before, but one of the things I hate about Democrats is we don't talk directly about the issue. We're like, well, they don't teach critical race theory in the schools. Like, who talks like that at a real basketball game or football game? Yeah, let's just be blunt. You're like, people are concerned. Are we going to teach kids to be embarrassed about being white? Are we going to teach kids about being embarrassed about being American, right? That's what's really going on. And say, no, of course not. We're the greatest country. There are a lot of people who are white who have made extraordinary contributions, but we're going to teach honestly about what happened. And I think part of the problem with the Democrats is instead of having real conversations, we're engaged in sort of buzzwords and and, and we almost are avoiding the hard conversations. I agree with you 100% on that, especially, you know, this tug of war over America's kids. I mean, I think what happened is, certainly coming out of COVID, I, I saw the Republicans kind of get on a bit of a roll saying, you know, making kids wear a mask is abusive of them. Keeping kids out of school too long is abusive of them. Force feeding them this anti-American, anti-white agenda is abusive of them. They began to kind of own this issue of we're protecting the kids. Well, look, man, once you're protecting the kids, that's a very strong uh, high ground in any conversation. I'm for the kids and you're not. And I think that Democrats need to do a better job of saying, oh, hold on a second. These ideas that we have are for the betterment of our kids. I do think that there are some voices on the left that are more mad at America than proud of America, more frustrated with the pain of the past. I'm frustrated with the pain of the past, too. I don't think you let the pain have the last word, though. I think you know, as, as important as it is to, to honor those histories, you know, tomorrow is more important than yesterday for the sake of our kids. And I think we've got to do a better job of, of talking about, we, we want kids to be proud of who they are, whatever color they are. And it should not cause any kid to feel any shame, black or white, to talk about what happened in the past. Because the point is for it never happened again. And black and white have a role to play to make sure it never happens again. You know, speaking of that, though, you know, the midterm elections are coming up. It looks like the Democrats have been dealt a tough hand. How do you see the, the peril and the promise of the midterm elections coming up 2022? It's obviously going to be a tough environment. I mean, it's uh, no secret that uh, the president's numbers are in the low 40s. You've got people back home talking about the price of gas, the, the price that they're paying on food. I think the, the challenge is, yes, we've got to say what we've done. The president has inherited a tough situation. We've passed infrastructure for the first time and helping people finally get affordable broadband. And that's going to happen. We finally gave people the child tax credit that helped a lot of working families during the worst of the pandemic. And we've turned the corner on employment. I mean, this is a record employment situation. But also, what are we going to do contrasting to the Republicans? Like, let's just imagine the Republicans are in charge. Joe Biden will get impeached and Adam Schiff will get kicked off his committees and Eric Swalwell will get kicked off his committees, and they'll open up investigations into Hunter Biden, and they'll stop everything that Biden wants to do. Like, is that what you really want to vote for? And what are we going to do? And I'd say what we are going to do 
is, in my view, we're going to be for a production agenda in America. You want to understand after the pandemic what we ought to do in this country? We ought to build things, make things in this country. Today's numbers on the GDP falling all because of our trade deficit. And you know what? You know, Donald Trump, you know, he said that all our jobs went to China and our Mexico and a lot of them shouldn't have gone. You know what? On the diagnosis that our jobs shouldn't have gone there, whether you're a Trump supporter or a Democrat, we can agree. 40 years of failed policy. But you know what? We have a real vision on how we're going to build things in this country. Again, it's not just tax cuts. We're going to get government, private sector working together to reindustrialize America. And that's going to be our agenda. And here are the three bills we're going to do. And, you know, we've done $10,000 of student loan forgiveness. We're going to do 10000 more. And we haven't gotten climate yet. Here's how we're going to get climate. Here's how we get to a $15 wage. So I think you have to give people a contrast on a forward-looking agenda, what we would do, what they would do. All that stuff sounds good to me. And I, you started off saying that you weren't, you weren't well-known. Uh, you need to be better known. <laughs> Hopefully, the people... Who, <laughs> After exactly, this podcast. It's all up here, but you can get the Van Jones podcast bump, man. It's all. I hope you're ready. hope you're ready. You know, these are the kinds of uh, challenges I think we're going to have to, you know, deal with going forward. You know, you, you mentioned the, you know, your your grandfather being involved in the Indian independence movement, and you you know said talked about the civil rights movement. How even that has impacted your family and helped you know open the doors up for your family. You know, these are not our grandparents' civil rights issues. These are not our grandparents' economic issues. When you're talking about robots taking jobs from people, you're talking about you know everybody being their own kind of having a Walter Cronkite that's actually an algorithm they don't even know how it functions and tell them. I mean, these are, this is new stuff. Uh, And I think it requires new thinking. I think it requires new leadership. And I just appreciate yours so much. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, it's an honor. You know, I've uh, admired you a long time. And I, I know you don't always do things that are conventional, but I think when you've gone out into those communities and tried to have honest conversations, you're helping build the fabric of this country to become the multiracial, multidemocracy we can be. You know, one final thought on this that's always struck me is some of the people in the Congress who are the most patriotic and the most optimistic about America are also the ones who struggled the most. I mean, the late colleague John Lewis, I mean, he was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and he'd come so optimistic about America. Whip Clymer, you know, jailed and yet he's positive about America. You know, my generation, I certainly personally have not struggled nearly as much as they have. And I guess part of me is just of a view that let's do our part to build. The previous generations have had it, in my view, much tougher than we have it today. We're kind of on the final leg to get to this multiracial, multiethnic democracy. And I, I think it's much more doable. And our task is, it seems to me, not as hard as, as many, certainly as my grandfather had it. Well, look, I, I heard the, the buzzer buzzing you, trying to get you to go vote. Yeah, go, go vote. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think the words that you, that you share with us right now are, are really important. Uh, go, go vote. Thank you, Van. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all you do. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. Wow, I I wish there were a rule that every congressperson had to go and do some work in a different congressperson's district. 
you got a deep blue district, I wish you had to go be in a deep red one. Or if you have a deep red one, you have to go do work in a blue one. Because I think that in addition to all the good things about that congressman, he got out of the bubble. (laughs) He stopped talking about folks in red parts of the country and started talking to them. And you can tell the difference. There are a lot of people who, you know, they, they, they know they're supposed to say, let's all get along. They know they're supposed to say we're all the same. But you can also tell that they're, they're holding a big part of the country at a distance. You know, often I see people on Fox News and they're you know, saying, oh, you know, we care about the black community and those people need to stop killing each other. And those people, like, hold on a second, guys. I'm pretty sure you haven't spent a bunch of time in an urban black community for a long time. I'm sure that the schools you're talking about, the families you're talking about, the neighbors you're talking about, are not neighborhoods where you're investing yourself. Because when you invest yourself in a place, you talk about it very differently. You hold it very differently. And that's also true, I think, with a lot of progressives. You know, we say, well, you know, those people in the red states, you know, they are voting against their economic self-interest and all the stuff that you hear. But when you go and you talk to people, like, no, these are good, smart folks. <laughs> I love you said you could have the same conversation in Silicon Valley we were having. Uh, in Kentucky, people are smart. People know what's going on. Um, but we talk about people. We don't talk to people. And that's what I thought was one of the great things about the conversation that we had is he was speaking from having actually put his body where his mouth is. And I just encourage everybody, whether you agree with Medicare for all or billionaire tax, all that kind of stuff, we can argue about that stuff. But I think my big takeaway from him is just the approach. I think Representative Connor's approach is to listen to all sides disagree in an agreeable way show up whether it's fox news or whether it's you know a a deep red county and at least try to establish a bridge of understanding if not of of agreement and we call that civility and i sure hope that we get more of it and i sure hope we get more leaders like representative ro connor this is uncommon ground and i'm van jones uncommon ground with van jones is an amazon original production It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credowell. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swinteman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Do you ever wonder what your teenager is going through when they're preparing to leave home and enter the real world? I'm Shimoliai, and in my new podcast, The Competition, I'll give you an inside look into the pressures and expectations high school girls have to face. I think I need to make 
a good first impression, or at least an impressive first impression. We're going to follow 50 teenage girls as they spend two weeks in Mobile, Alabama, competing in the largest cash scholarship competition exclusively for high school girls. You'll hear the silly, intimate moments. Why are you so amazing? Like, I want to be you guys. And the anxiety that comes with being an ambitious girl in America. My whole life I've told myself that I need to be a 35-year-old professional. Is the pressure too much to handle? From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.